unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfield. All right, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today, man? Nathan, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And as we're recording this, Halloween is coming up. It might be around Halloween when we release this episode, and it seems very fitting for what we've got lined up for the listeners today. It really is. Let's start with some data. Market research company Ipsos recently did a poll that found that 46% of Americans believe in ghosts. I found it annoying that they didn't ask Americans how many of them believed in monsters. You know, it's so important which words you use when you're taking a survey. Well, Ipsos also found that 7% of Americans believe in vampires and 6% believe in zombies. So with Halloween coming up, I thought this would be a good time to do a show about monsters, specifically the five monsters of copywriting, especially for all the copywriters who can't go trick-or-treating because they are locked in a room on deadline on Halloween. (laughs) What could be more tragic? That's almost as bad as forgetting these important words, copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. Most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. Now, look, the Ipsos poll also found that 88% of parents eat their kids' Halloween candy. So I guess being on deadline isn't that bad if you're a parent. But let's talk about these monsters. They are the very thing that keep us from writing. They haunt us and taunt us. Sometimes they even force us to reach out to others. I saw this sad plea for help on Twitter in late September from newspaper humor columnist Alexandra Petri. She wrote, friends, if you see me on here next week, that is on Twitter, if you see me on here next week, please bang a rolled up newspaper on a table nearby. (laughs) Remember, she's in her home or wherever she is, and they are in a different location, but she wants them to bang on a rolled up newspaper on a table nearby so that I get startled and scuttled away. I am supposed to be working on my book. Imagine that. She thinks that her friends can scare the monsters away from her by banging a rolled up newspaper on the table. Well, what are these monsters anyway? I mean, everyone knows about these monsters, at least vaguely. Everyone at least has an inkling of them. So, We're not afraid to talk about things here on this podcast that other people are afraid to talk about, even if we are afraid of those things ourselves. And they say the first step to solving a problem is admitting that you have the problem. And that may be about as far as we get with some of these monsters. But other ones, we might have a solution or two so you can scare that one away 
without having to bang a rolled up newspaper on the table. So why don't we just jump in? The first monster, and I have a little picture here. The first monster is called the perfectionism tyrant. <sighs> Can't you do anything right? Don't you love to hear that? We all have to deal with the perfectionism tyrant in one way or another. If we don't sweat the details and we hand off some sloppy copy to a client, then we're just outsourcing the perfectionism tyrant. So there are really two horrible things about this monster. One, it's very painful mentally. And two, it's counterproductive. It actually works against getting anything perfect. It's like when you get your car stuck in the snow and you start spinning your wheels, you rock it back. And has that ever happened to you, Nathan? You live in snow country. <laughs> yeah, more times than I, than I wish. Yeah, okay. I mean, what happens is you rock back and forth. You're trying to get some traction. But what happens instead is you keep grinding the snow underneath to get smoother and harder ice, which makes it even harder to get out of the rut. When you keep doing the same sentence over and over again, you end up getting nothing done, and that's no good. So let's look at what some other people say about perfectionism. Author and coach Mastin Kipp says, Perfectionism is a dream killer because it's just fear disguised as trying to do your best. On a lighter note, comedian Z. Frank observes, Perfectionism may look good in his shiny shoes, but he's a bit of an asshole and nobody invites him to their pool parties. And novelist Veronica Roth reminds us, there's really no way to be perfect. Perfectionism is a silly trait to have. Well, I agree with her that perfectionism is silly in one way, at least. It will never get you to perfect. And I disagree with some people. I think perfect is possible. It can take a long, long time. And if there's going to be perfectionism, it's only useful at the very tail end of the process. So about three months ago on the podcast, we had master screenwriter and writing teacher Thomas Dean Donnelly on, and he had some advice then that is worth repeating today. The purpose of your first draft is not to get it perfect. The purpose of your first draft is to get it done, meaning you can come back later to tighten it up, clean it up, polish it up. When I used to teach freelance magazine writing, I would tell students on their first draft to write it badly just so that they would get it out. Same idea. I probably should have added that their first draft should be bad, but not perfectly bad. So how do you wrestle the perfectionism tyrant to the ground? Here's some good advice from authors Martin H. Antony and Richard P. Swinson in their book, When Perfect Isn't Good Enough, Strategies for Coping with Perfectionism. The desire to improve your performance or meet high standards is not the same as being perfectionistic. It is this very desire to meet certain goals that also often helps you perform effectively in your environment. Now, they're talking about setting high standards and making an effort to reach them. What they're also saying is don't constantly be evaluating yourself every inch of the way to see how you're doing. Remember Ed Koch, a former mayor of New York? He used to walk around the streets asking random New Yorkers, how am I doing? Don't be like Ed. Back to the book, the authors say people at the top of their field, such as elite athletes, must also set 
high standards to achieve what they do. Without standards, people generally achieve less. Fair enough, guys, and that should work, as long as none of your standards is the standard of perfect. So let me say what Tom and I were saying earlier in another way. Improving a piece of copy in stages or drafts can be tedious and try your patience, but it's almost always the best way to make the perfectionism tyrant start crying and walk away. And usually the best way to get your best performing copy. And finally, a quote from author and psychologist Harriet Bracker, striving for excellence motivates you. Striving for perfection is demoralizing. Words to live by. So we both do music and we've both gone through the music production uh, cycle. And one thing that I learned in music is the concept of getting to the point where your ears just, they go dead and they can't hear the different tones. You sit in the studio all day and your ears will get to the point where they just can't pick out the different tones and the different nuances. And so you take a break and when you go to master the album, you take it to another studio where there's some fresh ears and there's a fresh sound environment to listen to it in a different area. And the reason that you do that is because you get exhausted. Your ears get exhausted. Same thing happens for me with my eyes and my mind when I'm writing copy. So you mentioned earlier the missing out on Halloween because we had to stay up doing the deadline. I like to stagger my deadlines. If I have a piece of copy that's due in two weeks, I like to have a deadline maybe four days and then a separate deadline two days before the deadline and then the final deadline and i have the copy written four days before and then i take a break from it and then i look at it with fresh eyes two days before it's due and i go through and i do some fine editing and look and make sure the sentence structure is there and make sure there's not any speed bumps and then i do a final edit right before so staggering those those deadlines out and allowing yourself space and time to get fresh eyes to look at the piece of copy is a great way to overcome this monster of perfection. That's a really good point. And I've heard that referred to as setting false deadlines for yourself, except they're not really false. It's like you set up three stages of what you're doing and each stage has its own deadline. But yeah, it's putting all of that weight on one moment and in one instance, not good. But yeah, that's a really good point and, and way to do things. So let's go to monster number two, the random distractor. Could you play that one, please? Uh, there must be something good on TikTok. <laughs> there must be something good on TikTok. Really? You find two kinds of distractions. Those you go after yourself and those that interrupt you. On the last show... We talked about Claude Hopkins, who worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week, at least according to his former boss, Albert Lasker. He probably suffered no distractions, but all work and no play must have made Claude a dull, dull boy. I interviewed some more colorful copywriters, a couple of A-list copywriters, to find out how they deal with the random distractor. John Carlton had a system that really worked for him when he was in the heat of writing a lot of copy. He said, what he said you can learn from, even if you wouldn't do it exactly this way yourself. When he was writing a long form sales letter, he would spend all of his time 
doing research up to the last minute, which was for him five working days before it was due. Here's what he said. I used to trick myself. It worked every time. What I needed was something already written. So on Monday, he'd glance at his research and next part, and I quote, blast out some shit on the page. Kind of the opposite of perfectionism. Anything would do. And then on the next day, quote, it was easy. I'd tell myself, I'm just going to edit for 10 minutes. Editing was a joy, and I'd slip into a trance. And before I know it, I'm into it. Those sessions, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they would last about two hours each, and he was totally absorbed. He said, if the phone rang, I would just reach over and turn it off, and later when we got iPhones, send it to voicemail. But I preferred complete silence. Distraction wasn't a problem for him because of how he had prepped the research and the forward pull of the deadline, which would be Friday. The key thing for him was 10 hours of flow state for writing across five days, and that was enjoyable for him. Okay, another A-lister. I asked million-dollar Mike Morgan, who's been writing blockbuster promotions lately for Money Map Press. He said, I don't turn off my phone, my internet, my email. It's always crunch time for me, he said. I can screen calls. I can screen emails. They don't really bother me. As he thought more about it, Mike realized two key things he does are he brings in training from bike racing and from boot camp in the Marines. From my racing mindset, he said, you need to concentrate. You need to know when the pivotal moments are. At the end of the race, you're hyper aware of everything around you. It's like you have eyes in the back of your head and you have one goal, to win. The key for Mike, and I quote, is knowing your shit, focusing on your research, creating a mental map of how the research fits into the copy. Once you do that, flow just hits. The other thing I found really interesting was a part of boot camp in the Marines called the confidence course, where everybody had to climb a ladder made of logs and climb down the other side, and the logs were pretty far apart, and they got further apart the higher you went. The price of fall, the price of failure was falling into a giant pool of water, he said, which would be embarrassing, and you'd never hear the end of it from all of the other guys in boot camp. I'm saying, he said, all I did was visualize coming down the other side. I focused on finishing. Okay, so this is visualization when the heat is on in real life. But it also gave Mike a way to keep his eye on the ball when he's writing copy. So here's an idea for you to follow up on if checking TikTok or Facebook is too tempting. There's a word processor called OMM, O-M-M. It sells for set your own price with a minimum as of the day we're recording of $8.42. It's pretty simple. It blocks out everything except a clean white writing space on your computer screen. And it's hard, though not impossible, to close it. So that can keep you writing. Also, and not when you're looking at the screen, but in other parts of your life, this is where meditation can come in handy. Not while you're writing. And I'm not talking about it here for spiritual or religious reasons, which you can certainly do, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about using it to get yourself in the habit of mindfulness. You practice staying focused in a relaxed state for a few minutes every day. I do that. Remember, your attention is a muscle. It needs to work out, 
but it also needs to rest and recover. Finally, a quote from the great Warren Buffett, the most dangerous distractions are the ones you love, but don't love you back. I just want to say, as copywriters, 40, 50 years ago, we had some distractions, but if we were sitting at the typewriter, and I'm just putting myself into that time frame, the regular life distractions, maybe someone knocking at the door, maybe the phone ringing. Now, when we're typing, we have a whole world of distractions. We've got Facebook notifications, TikTok notifications, YouTube notifications, email notifications, and it's all right there on the same machine that we're trying to type at. So... I'm just going to say I 100% co-sign on the meditation. I've started meditating every morning and I just sit there for when I'm right when I'm waking up, I just sit there for about two to five minutes and I just focus on my breathing. And every time my mind starts to go somewhere else, I bring it back to my breathing. And for no other reason than the fact that I've noticed a tremendous improvement on my ability to focus on copy, I can sit there at the keyboard with an open word doc and I'm not distracted by what's going on on Facebook or what's going on on TikTok. So because the world has changed, I think that as copywriters, we have to change too and we have to figure out there are hacks and tools like you mentioned about clearing out the desktop, but I found it beneficial to be able to do that myself rather than having to rely on another app. Yeah, it's always better if you can do it with your own mind rather than needing a device to do it. I agree. Do you have a problem with Kindle books? I do. Sometimes I really just want to hold a book in my hand so I can turn the pages and highlight stuff and make notes. That's one reason I recently released the print version of my book, Breakthrough Copywriting. And listen to this. On Facebook, I've gotten pictures posted from around the world. Pictures of people holding their printed copy of Breakthrough Copywriting in their hands, including one from an A-list screenwriter and marketer in LA's famous Topanga Canyon. He was reading the book in his hot tub. Breakthrough Copywriting is a great book for you, whether you are a beginner or an A-lister yourself or anywhere in between. It costs a tiny, tiny fraction of my $5,000 a head seminar that the book is based on. So check out Breakthrough Copywriting on Amazon.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, so let's get to number three. Yum, yum, yum. Monster number three is the snack seducer. Mm, how about a sandwich with some chips and a side of M&M's? Ah, sandwich with chips and a side of M&M's. You gotta eat. And... Some people's metabolism works best when they eat five or six times a day, small meals. One thing I know is everybody's different, and you got to find what works for you. Food can be good, but remember, eating is never a substitute for writing, even if you have learned how to type with your teeth. I've found that a paleo-type diet works for me, never a big meal or a heavy snack when I'm writing, but starving while writing doesn't work for me either. Like I said, everyone's different. Bon Appetit magazine surveyed some writers. Do you ever wonder why some writers go down rabbit trails sometimes? This may be a clue. While she's writing, New Yorker staff writer and author Ariel Levy says she eats like a rabbit, or I suppose a rat, carrots, radishes, and little bits of cheese. Works for her, I guess. I couldn't stand to snack on radishes myself. On the other hand, short story writer Leslie Nikkei 
Arima actually forgets to eat. When I'm in the zone, I can go hours and hours without a meal or a snack because I'm worried that stopping will break the spell. Then there's the solution of the magic snack. Listen to what novelist Nicole Dennis Barn told Bon Appetit. When I'm writing, I find that I hardly eat, but when I'm stuck, I'll brew a second cup of coffee and have popcorn, grapes, apple slices, or any fruits that are in season. And we'll be talking more about coffee soon, but Nathan, would you like to talk about the snack seducer? I feel guilty about this one, and it's because oftentimes right after I finish eating dinner, my brain works best at night, and right after I finish eating dinner, I get some of my best copy. So maybe, I don't know, the the snack seducer, it's, it's one that has a hold on me, but I think we have like maybe a symbiotic relationship where it works out okay. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, gosh. Don't feel guilty because you're different. I mean, it's not like you eat dinner. The snack seducer is when you have to go every five minutes to have a few more Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh, know? yeah. Okay. I'm definitely not that guy. Okay. All right. So let's cue up monster number four, the caffeine taser. Another cup of coffee. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Another cup of coffee. If it doesn't kill you, it will make you stronger. Okay. A confession. I love coffee. I use two really strong coffees, Baltimore Tea and Coffee's Jack Reacher and Pete's Espresso Forte. And I brew them with an Arobi AeroPress. Now, all false modesty aside, it's almost as good as Starbucks. Okay, actually, it's a lot better than Starbucks for me. But here's the thing about coffee. A little coffee is good. A little more coffee is good. But too much coffee can be bad. Now, the caffeine taser comes in to bother you when you're moving into that overdose category. I would like to share something with you I found on a website called SpoonUniversity.com. It's by Marino Nazario, and she writes, Jitters from caffeine is not uncommon. It occurs when you go overboard and how much you consume. Drinking about five, six cups of coffee a day is considered caffeine intoxication. Oh, what? And produces side effects such as shaking. Me, right now. Caffeine boosts adrenaline levels, and that produces high blood pressure, sweatiness, jittery sensations, and other symptoms associated with drinking too much coffee, according to Gizmodo. Close quotes. The article goes on to say, the only known solution to the problems by drinking too much coffee you want to guess this, Nathan? I have no idea. Drinking less coffee. Oh, that's not the it's... one I was hoping for. Okay. You want to say what it was? Well, I don't drink coffee, but I drink a lot of tea. And so it's probably the same thing. Well, anyway, I got a, a short list of the best songs ever written about drinking coffee. And after you hear a few of the titles, I think you'll start to see they're very similar. One More Cup of Coffee, Bob Dylan, The Coffee Song. Frank Sinatra, The Coffee Song, Different Song by Cream, A Cup of Coffee by Johnny Cash, and finally, Cup of Coffee by a group called Garbage. So you can see there's a relative uniformity in the title of coffee tunes. That's all I got. 
<laughs> Coffee's one of those things, and like I said, I'm more of a tea guy myself. But I thought you stopped drinking coffee entirely. I rarely drink coffee, maybe once or twice in a six month period. Oh wow! But I do drink a lot of tea. I still drink tea every day: green tea, black tea, chai tea. And right now, as we're recording, I'm actually just drinking a carbonated caffeine water. And so I still get my caffeine and probably too much sometimes. As do we all. Okay, this brings us to the fifth coffee monster. You want to queue up the helper from hell? My English teacher told me never to end a sentence with a preposition. <laughs> never to end a sentence with a preposition. And when I ran that by John Carlton, he added to never begin a sentence with the word and. Yeah, there are lots of rules out there with grammar and syntax and punctuation. And you can't ignore them. In fact, it's better off you know them. But to write copy following all the traditional rules of writing is going to hurt you. Why? Because that kind of writing doesn't connect with people. And among other things, you need your copy to connect with your prospects. So how do you defeat this monster? Three ways. One, read a lot of successful copy and pay attention to how grammatical mistakes are used strategically. Two, get a lot of experience writing copy so you know what works, what doesn't work, and what you can get away with. And three, most important, but this may work better after you've done the first two, listen to how people actually talk, not on podcasts like this or on TikTok videos or politicians. I mean, just like real, normal, ordinary people in Starbucks, where the coffee is not as good as mine. Develop an inner sense of how people talk and write from that inner sense. And here's something to wrap this part up with. It's from a great book I really like called The Comic Toolbox by John Forhouse. He talks about discovering the book, The Elements of Style in High School, and becoming a strict disciple of all the proper rules of grammar. But one day, he decides to break one of the rules the rule being never write in a passive voice. And he writes this hilarious bit, totally in the passive voice, that probably he never would have written if he hadn't colored outside the lines a little and if he didn't know the rule in the first place so he could break it. He shares it in the book, and it's very funny. Then, after that, he writes, quote, So slavish had I been in my devotion to the so-called rules of good writing. You can tell by the rhythm of this, he's a really good writer. Rules of good writing that I had missed out on a piece of real linguistic merriment. A joke, if nothing else. In blind obeisance to the rules, I forgot to have fun. And geez, if you can't have fun in writing, or painting, or drawing, or acting, or twisting balloon animals, or indeed any creative endeavor, why bother? And copy needs to do a job, but there are no points taken off if you have fun while you're writing, or if the reader has fun while reading it. The only points that get taken off is if your copy doesn't work. And copy you had fun writing can definitely work. I know this from experience. Now, copy isn't comedy, but a lot of the same rules apply. Once you get into it, the reins of serious writing are off, and at times it can be a whole lot of fun. So, happy Halloween. These are the five monsters of copywriting. The perfectionism tyrant the random distractor, the snack seducer, the caffeine taser, and the helper from hell. I think this was a perfect time, not just for the season, but just in general to kind of go through these and 
maybe think about your most recent piece of copy and examine it and examine yourself and your performance and see if maybe you fell victim to some of these. It's always good to kind of step out of ourselves and examine our own work. And this is a good tool set to examine that work through. Yeah, thank you. I agree. At a certain point, when you've got the overwhelm and the panic gone and you've got good clients and you've got a good income and you've got a good writing process, then then your next level up is to improve the quality of your experience Mm -hmm. and, you know, send the demons packing. Yeah. David, thank you so much, man, for putting this together and for sending over the cool audio clips that we could add into the audio experience for the listeners. I got a kick out of them. I know they'll get a kick out of them as well. And if you listeners want more episodes like this, head on over to copywriterspodcast.com. And anything else before we're out of here? Nope. That's it. May the monsters be gone. (laughs) All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Before we go, a quick question. Would you like to have me as a guest on your podcast? Let me give you an easy way to contact me about that. We've put up a form on garfinkelmedia.com, and it won't take much more than a minute to fill it out. So if you'd like to have me on your show, just go to garfinkelmedia.com and fill out the form. That's garfinkelmedia.com. Thanks, and see you next time on the Copywriters Podcast. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.